We are live on Facebook. Yes. Okay. Uh, June the 16th, 2019, lecture discussion number 68 on the book of Joel. And I've gotten a couple of letters, uh, many letters, actually. By many, I mean one. Uh, asking me to stop drinking stuff. And I'm making a concession. Uh, I actually am. I've stopped drinking caffeine absolutely completely. I have to because it raises my heart rate. And so that's the end of caffeine for me. That ends uh, the opportunity for the Coca-Cola Corporation to utilize the incredible advertising that I give them. I have moved uh, to uh, caffeine-free. There's no caffeine to it, so that eliminates it as useful, except for the uh, aluminum poisoning and the aspartame. Hi, Jennifer. She's the one in Arizona that would like me to stop. I, I plan to. I think I, I don't really have much of a choice. So um, this is my way of weaning it off as best I can. I'm used to the oral fixation. <sighs> I also got a couple of letters to read that made me laugh. So uh, let's start with a couple of these. Uh, one is from Luke, who wrote last week, I believe. I can't remember that far back now. A dear Cyclopean, metabolically challenged theological professional. <laughs> Good start is indeed right. Just a note to correct something from last week's email. Instead of Bob Hope in the postscript, I meant to say Bob Newhart. He made a comment that I am like Bob Hope. In the way I deliver uh, the lectures, and I pointed out that Bob Hope died at 120 years ago or so, at 15, I think. So that dated Luke significantly, and he wanted to correct that. I meant to say Bob Newhart. He goes on to say the obvious. I realize this is not much better. <laughs> I think Bob Newhart's 90. I'll probably regret revealing this sometime in the future, but I'm 33. Well, you're a, if he's... How do I put this? I'm not sure that Bob Newhart and Bob Hope are quite contemporary in the... Uh, uh, never mind, Luke. I'll stop right there. Uh, right on the dull edge of the millennial generation, he says at 33. I wanted to say that I got immense pleasure from the symphony of I'm sorry, peripheral groaning I heard when you uttered the word string theory. I would be lying if I said this wasn't a considered benefit when I wrote the email in the first place. Praying for your recent health issues and hoping you continue doing what you do for a very long time. Yours by my free will, Luke. Lucas. Thanks, Lucas. Uh, that, those are a delight. I, I, every time you write, I, I get a laugh, and that's important. This is from John from Pennsylvania. Dear my pastor DeStevo, this is especially true since our Mennonite pastor retired and we don't have a replacement. Uh, hint, Pennsylvania is a nice place to live. <laughs> then he goes on to talk about uh, what he sent me, but uh, or sent the church. He, he mentions that uh, to uh, belated birthday supper for supper day, if he exists. Uh, everyone wants to know if Supper Dave exists, and of course the answer is probably not. Uh, that's probably the case. We, we, it's a mathematical system. Quantum physics is mathematical. There's a probability. I'm not incorrect from a physical perspective. Ah, let's see. I, for one, and maybe the only one, enjoyed your talk on heterochronic parabiosis. There is one, and it is John from Pennsylvania. It tempts me to go to Pennsylvania now. I can't find any info on the Internet about it. I think Satan blocked it. Let me say this for those of you who have asked. And by those of you, I mean John from Pennsylvania. Uh, here's a uh, probably what I would consider the, the first one you should read. There's lots of material, but it's anything from the Stanford University School of Medicine. And the title of this particular monograph was A Revival in Parabiosis in Biomedical Research. So, John, let me repeat that. Stanford University School of Medicine, A Revival in Parabiosis in Biomedical Research. Stanford is on the edge now. They are the ones who have uh, gone the furthest with uh, this kind of activity, this kind of biological research. Uh, let's see. I was surprised you didn't mention U2B 
to the one wanting videos. Uh, and I have to go and see what I said about that. I don't remember. As always, your happy follower, John from Pennsylvania. John, thank you very much for writing again. It's fantastic that you're the one that liked that lecture. Okay, where am I? June the 16th, 2019, uh, lecture discussion number 68 on the book of Joel. My plan is to exit Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, which is kind of where we are again today, no matter the volume of material remaining. And that was my plan. And then I got all the way through this thing, and I couldn't finish it. And that's how it goes around here a lot. But uh, I wanted to transition back to the seven church prophecy of Revelation 1 through 3. And I'm going to attempt simultaneity, which be, because I'm a highly compensated religious professional, I can do that. And I think I did it, but uh, it remains to be seen how much I was able to do that. Revelation 1, 3, 1 through 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, i got to make that concise and obvious, is more considered to be connected to the prophecy of Joel. Revelation and Joel. Whereas Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, where we are today, reach into Joel and Revelation, but they do it through Genesis 1 through 3. Mainly Genesis 3.15, which is where Satan is condemned by Christ. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent declaration, if you wish to think of it that way. Jesus Christ, the invisible God, made visible. Jesus Christ, who's the ancient of days, which means he's the judge of all things. He's the trial judge. Let me put that up there, because that's going to happen again. He's the trial judge at Genesis 3, and he reveals to the witnessing angelic host. If you want to think of the people, uh, if you want to think of the, uh, the audience of the trial, that's the angelic host, because all I have is Adam and Eve, animals, and the angelic host watching the trial of Adam, Eve, and Satan. So he reveals to the angelic host and Adam and Eve the certainty of the inflicting of a fatal blow to the seed of the serpent. So he gives us a lot of information there. He says there's going to be a seed of the serpent. That in itself is incredible. And that seed of the serpent is going to have a fatal blow inflicted upon him by the seed of the woman. Now the angelic host is watching this. So you have to begin to think like they would think. They have any idea about this. I I don't believe they did. This was a complete and total revelation for them. And this solemn aspect uh, of the sentencing here was not lost on the whole of the angelic realm. I have two, two groups, don't I? I have fallen and unfallen. And remember how the Lord God in the flesh presents this, Genesis 3.14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, and I have covered what this is in other lectures, hopefully also available. Because you have done this, you are cursed more. So obviously I have others that are cursed. But Satan is cursed more. So immediately we know that Adam is, the earth is under, the ground is under the curse, and Adam will return to the dust. And we call that the curse. But Satan's curse is more. What's the obvious question? Why is Satan's curse more than anybody else? Anybody else, including angel. And I have fallen angel. He says, curse more than the the cattle. Remember that lecture a while back? I identify actually who the cattle actually is. That's a redundant actually, but it's because I have no caffeine in this at all. And that will be destructive. The this in the statement was the deceiving of the woman. Because you have deceived the woman, you are cursed more. Who else has Satan deceived up to this point, if you have a timeline? Do you have your timeline? You have a timeline. Let's put the deceiving of the woman right there. Who is anyone deceived before the deceiving of the woman? I have Ezekiel twenty-eight, sixteen. 
That's the abundance of your traffic, where he goes by angel by to angel by angel, repeating the premise, his lie. Where do you put that? This is this is the woman here. Why isn't Adam on the deceiving list? Because he wasn't deceived. So where do you put it? Well, I think you're going to find the overwhelming evidence is that it's before the woman. So I have all of these deceived angels, but he didn't say you are cursed more for deceiving them. You are cursed more for deceiving the woman. So in other words, if you want to think of it this way, since we're in a trial. Did I mention trial yet? Did I say the word trial? I want to try to say trial for a bunch of reasons. This is what this would be the what? First offense. This would be the second offense. And he's cursed more. And that leads to the fundamental question of Genesis 3. The deceiving of the woman, the deceiving of the angelic host, the falling of the angelic host, the falling of the woman, the fall of Adam. That leads to the fundamental question, as I'm saying again. What is the deception of Satan, the abundance of your traffic? What is it specifically? And something it's something I've devoted many hours and hours and words and words to resolving its totality over my so-called career. I've never put it all in one I had a wonderful lady from a wonderful lady write and say, Can you put all of this in one sermon or at least get it close? And I cannot. Is he calling for grandma? He said yes, dear. He lied. <laughs> they always lie to you. Hmm. It's because of your influence. I I don't know where they got it from. But again, I've I've spent thousands of uh, at least a thousand hours. I probably have. I can't even imagine how many lectures I've written on Genesis three, trying to resolve all that's there. And I haven't even come close. But I do have quite a bit on the internet. And the poor lady wanted to know. Not poor lady. She would like it uh, condensed and. I don't think that we're ever going to accomplish it because why? We just don't have the resources to go through and do all of that. It's not even something we could imagine doing. So I'm sorry about that. And actually, I really am sorry about that. It'd be nice to do it. I get asked to do it all the time, and um, I just can't, I can't find time to do something of that magnitude. Okay, Christ did not conclude... With the disclosure, he didn't conclude the trial with the disclosure of the inevitable killing of the seed of Satan, as you know. He added also the wounding. So I have the killing of the seed of the serpent, but I have the wounding or the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman. So he could have, the adding of this portion doesn't seem to make sense to people. As when I say people, I mean scholars. I'm going to say to you today, or attempt to prove to you today in a subtle way, that the, the fatal wound, the fatal wound to the seed of the serpent, is absolutely, intricately, inexorably tied to the bruising of the heel. In other words, one begets the other. It, the bruising of the heel has to be with the fatal wound to the head. This isn't a possibility. There's no possibility of anything else. I know that's true because who said it? Omniscience said it. And it's obvious that it is that way. It's a mathematical uh, certainty. I, I hope that, that you can find that to, to be the case today. So the first question is, is why is this inexorably linked? Why is it a mathematical certainty? How does Satan accomplish this? Because you have to wound who? You have to bruise, you have to wound God. How do you wound God? It's the wounded God paradox. Quit waving to the babies. Yes, it's a rule here. They get happy and then what happens? <laughs> Apparently, we have to wave to the babies. <laughs> it's not possible not to wave to the babies. <laughs> okay. 
once I decide, once you decide, because it's your job to decide, my job is to get you to decide, once you begin to wrestle with how does Satan wound omnipotent God, then the second question comes right behind it. When did, when did Satan wound omnipotent God? And then, of course, the third question, why does Satan choose to, to do this? What value does it have to Satan? Obviously, Christ is saying that Satan will do this. He'll choose willfully to do it because he'll want to. Why? How? Where? When does it happen? And as you know, there are many thoughts on this subject. And it's the great majority of opinion, the conventional wisdom, the published consensus, all of that is that God was bruised, was stricken by Satan. Where? And when? What do you think? You can yell it out. It's okay. We won't laugh a lot. <laughs> the consensus is overwhelming. The publish especially that the dashing of the foot was the death of Christ on the cross. So it's the crucifixion. That's the wounding of Christ. And, uh, and though hardly anyone dare say, suggest otherwise, there are some unresolved issues with that position and this is where you all go, ooh, rut row, because this is hollowed ground, man. You do not say that the bruising of the heel was not the crucifixion. Unless you're somebody that might be a little bit unusual. And I am well aware of the bovinity of the establishment with regard to Genesis 3.15 here. They all nod. The bruising of the heel is at the crucifixion. I can't find a contrary position. Can't. I know they exist because I've heard other people put a paper bag over their head and talk about it. And this isn't something you do unless, like I said, you were weird before you came to Cliffside. So I... Once I hear that, I'm going to ask what? At least one question. Uh, uh, just small, teeny, some might say quantum particle tiny question. Maybe I'll ask two. Or actually, I'll get to 50. Because there's some questions to ask here. Jesus God makes it undeniably clear. No equivocation. He doesn't equivocate. No one can take his life. No one can do it. He must lay it down himself. John 10, 17, and 18. It's a commandment that he lay it down himself. It's the triune God proclaims a commandment that Jesus Christ, God the Son, will lay down his own life. It is absolutely, uh, it is an absolute, and it must be done by him. And thus the need to reconcile the magnitude of God laying down his life and the description of Satan striking his heel. So this is striking the heel. The crucifixion is God laying down his life. Do they seem to be at the same scale level, if you will? Right off the bat, I'm going, hmm. The sacrificial death of the Lord God Almighty is an unsolvable mystery. And I, the blow to the heel of Christ, is a non-fatal event. And it pales. It is nowhere near the level of God laying down his life willfully. Essentially, this unsolvable mystery is the question of the death of life itself. Now, that might sound a bit odd, but life cannot die. Why do I know that life itself, who Christ is, God is life himself, how do I know that that life cannot die? Because it's omnipotent life. How do I kill omnipotent life? But what I'm attempting to describe is another paradox of the living God, willfully willing himself to die. And that's the only way it can happen. And as you comp contemplate the collision of the elements involved, I submit you will find our, our little finite human condition is incapable of describing the death of Christ on the cross 
We cannot come up with how it was done. We can only give an outline of what happened. It's much like science today. They can't explain gravity. They describe gravity. Very little why or how in science. Mostly is what. How does infinite life accomplish this? Go ahead, take it on. How much force is necessary for Christ to lay down his life? How much force is necessary for an outside being, created being, to take the life of him? I recognize that many have attempted to place death on the sinless body only. In other words, they say the body died only. Well, that's not an invalid, that's a valid perspective, but doesn't make it any less complicated. How infinite is the body of Christ? I know that's an intentionally poorly structured question. I did that on purpose. I'll do it again. How infinite is the body of Christ? Answer the question. Remember, there's no corruption in the body. Psalm 16.10. So how did the body die? Now, let me be without any dispute here. No, no possibility. Christ definitively died on the cross. There's no question that he died. What I'm asking you, what is the process? Good luck. Bring a lunch. I'm doing it for the purpose. I asked the intentionally poorly structured question, how infinite is the body of Christ for the purpose of illustrating that this is not something that you solve very easily, if ever, you're not going to solve it. Let me say, not if ever, whenever. You're just not whatever. I can't remember. What did the kids say? I think it's whenever I speak to me, they always go, whatever. Christ died on the cross. Omnipotent life willfully died on the cross by his will. Just meditate on that. Okay, enough of that for today, but we got to go back. Obviously, in my opinion, the striking of the heel of Christ is not equivalent to Jesus laying down his life, John 10:17, which is what he said. Last question of this lecture on this part, on this tangent. What did Christ mean? How does he define his life? If I say, I lay down my life, what am I saying? I'm dying physically. Well, he died physically. What else is part of my life? What is the definition of life? When he says it, his definition is the only one that matters. So your, your thesis on this subject will be due on Thursday, test on Friday. So be comprehensive, single space. Don't use the word then over and over again. Yes, sir. Well, Christ's body is, when Adam dies, ultimately, he dies in sin. Yes, he's asking, what is the difference between Christ's body and, and Adam's body? The life force in Adam is God's life force given to Adam. The life force in Christ's body is God. So I have difference between the life forces in a sense. The, the substrate, what's the word? That's not the word. The substance is immortal. But one has the intelligence of God, the infinity of God. The other does not. So that would be a primary difference. And of course, when we get back to Matthew 4, which we're going to be, Satan recognizes there's a difference between Adam and this guy. Duh, yeah. Yeah, well, you do have a perfect human being. You had two of them. You had Eve as well. And in other words, sinless. They are the only human beings that have been in sinless condition, a sinless state. That's right. And the body, you know, there's some wonderful commentaries on the subjection of the body of Christ to the will of Christ. Um, uh, probably the best that I've 
read, I mean, really fast. There's a wonderful debate between Walford and, um, and Ryrie where Walford prevails. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. So, if it's not the crucifixion, and I'm saying to you without going into any more detail that I don't believe it's a crucifixion, that I'm taking that away because the level of the crucifixion is so extraordinary it does not fit the bruising of the heel. So where did the bruising of the heel occur? And some propose what? What's the next proposition? If it's not the crucifixion, and no one should ever say it's not the crucifixion, and if you heard me say it's not the crucifixion, well, I'll deny it in a court of law so we can destroy the tape now. But if it's not the crucifixion, where did the striking of the foot, the dashing of the foot, the bruising of the heel, where Satan attacks and, and does accomplishes this, where did it happen in the Bible? It's got to be there, don't you think? And some propose Gethsemane, and that's not without merit. But keep in mind, Gethsemane doesn't just stand alone. Nothing stands alone in the Bible. But Gethsemane takes you to Revelation 19. So I have Matthew 26. I have John 18. I have um, 1 Thessalonians 4. They correspond. And Revelation 19, 17, 21 is intrinsically tied and interlocked with Matthew 26, 36 through 56, 1 Thessalonians 4, and John 18. So I can't separate them is what I'm trying to say there. Now, to assist in the comprehension of the symmetry of Revelation 19, 17 through 21 and John 18, 1 through 11 and Matthew 26, 36 through 56, I just want to note the most obvious pattern that, that binds this all together. And hopefully you'll see the pattern in both without me having to actually articulate it. I'll do some of that, but I'm really trying to get you to go as soon as I give you the Gethsemane pattern, the Matthew 26 pattern, you will immediately recognize the Revelation 19 pattern. That's the plan. The baby has 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 kidnapped another person. How many babies of your own do you have, young lady? You have two. That's not enough, is it? They're not babies. That's exactly right. It's like puppies, isn't it? It's exactly like that. <laughs> yes, that is a, a frightful truth that they do not stay puppies. They become teenagers. And that's why God makes them teenagers so that we will throw them out. No one would ever throw out a puppy. <laughs> The, one of the fundamentals of parenthood is the role of the father is to protect the mother from the daughters. You know that, right? Yeah, just saying. <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the last federal head of earth, the second and last, is in the garden. Gethsemane, the oil-pressed garden. So I have Adam, the last Adam, in a garden again, right? So immediately you're going to go Genesis 3. But I'm trying to get you this time to go Revelation 19. And Judas brings... Judas brings... And I like to call this... Bring one... Why do I call it bring one? Because I want you to begin to think about where is bring two? Is there a bring three? But Judas, Judas brings, he arrives with a great multitude, Matthew 26, 47. That's what it says, a great multitude. Allow me to reword this a bit. Judas with Satan inside of him. So I have Judas, Satan. 
I like to write it that way, and you know why, don't you? Because I'm contrasting the, the Judas Satan with the Jesus God. There's a difference. This is a triunity. This is a binary operation. One's a counterfeit. It's the best he can do because they're individuals. God himself is triune. Judas brings a great multitude. Judas has Satan inside, entered by Satan, John 13, 27. So Judas, Satan has come and he brings with him a great multitude. And Matthew uses the word when he describes Judas. He says, behold, Judas has come because Judas is a great mystery. He's a behold. And this great multitude comes with him. An immediate obvious question. How many is in this multitude that Judas has brought to Christ? He's brought them. How long did it take him to assemble them? How many do you think they are? When the Bible says great multitude, now most people say, well, a Roman cohort or con is 600 men. We think it's so many, 600. I'm going to tell, to tell you that it is thousands, maybe tens of thousands. Who are they going up against? They're going up against God. They don't know that. At this point, I think uh, Judas Satan has figured a whole lot out. They come, they're quick studies. This is a, Judas Satan has come leading an overwhelming force, I think, of many thousands. A military action, swords and clubs, the chief priests, the elders of Israel, the highest religious leadership and the highest political leaders are with Judas Satan. And this is Judas brings one. Judas brings one. Forgot the S up here. Maybe I erased it. And you're going to read commentary on Matthew 26, 36 through 56 and John 18, 11 from accomplished theologians and their wonderful, brilliant men and women who propose that Judas Satan was overrun by the military force once Christ was identified, which unfortunately for them in the books that they've published is ridiculous. Who can move Satan? We know the answer to that, don't we? Who can move him? Who has done it before this does Satan and Judas know that they're going in front of somebody, Matthew 4, that has already thrown Satan forever? Who knows how far? I make the case that he went to the lake of fire, which I think is quite possible because the lake of fire is part of the trial of Satan at Genesis 3.14. But who can move Satan? Who can cast Satan to the ground? Obviously, Christ says, I am, and everybody, the whole group, Collapses. Was, did Judas collapse at the same time? Absolutely he did. Who's inside of him? Satan's there. What's it take to drop Satan? But he did it. Obviously he's God. And again, I'm referring to Matthew 4, Luke 4, Ezekiel 28, 17. Christ pushes Satan around any time he chooses. Sends him wherever he wants. And Satan knows it. He's gone through Matthew 4 already. So they come, Judas and Satan, they come. They're combined, not because they believe they can do anything with Christ, because they know they can't. So why do they combine? How do they know each other? How do you put Satan inside of, a, of Judas? What's the process? Man cannot cannot do anything here. And again, they think that uh, the theologians, they believe that Judas is just uh, an accessory, that he's just a, um, the, he's an idiot. They think that he's just standing there and he's going to make a couple of bucks. And the army's going to swoop in, throw him out of the way. They actually write it that way. He's got Satan inside of him. The army, the military, 
humanity, little feeble, tiny ant humanity is not going to knock Judas Satan anywhere or affect them in any way. I don't care how many swords and clubs they got or how many of them there are. Judas Satan has this sign of the kiss. And Jesus God says to them, it's inexplicable kind of, but it isn't once you start going down the process of figuring it out. He calls Judas friend. He calls Judas Satan friend. He knows Satan's inside of him. He says, friend, why have you come? You have come to to see me. You have come to Christ. Why have you come to Christ? Did I help you? Hope I did. Why do you, has anyone come to Christ? But he doesn't ask anyone. He says, why does, why do you, friend, come to me? And when he did that, that identified him as Christ. So what's not, what's completely now unnecessary? The kiss. Why does Christ speak to them and identify himself? He wants them to know, everyone there to know who he is. How many did he knock down? How many were affected by that? What does it take to rest somebody that can knock you down by speaking his name? And you fall down. How long were they all down there? How long did he keep them there? As long as was necessary for what? For them to know something. We'll get to that in a minute. But why does he speak to Judas Satan aloud? Anyway, Judas rushes to Christ. Mark 14, 44. He rushes to him. 44, 45. And he yells out, Rabbi, Rabbi. Then he kisses him. That's what Judas Satan does. Thousands of questions. Christ responds, friend, why have you come? And some will say, friend doesn't really mean friend. Yes, it does. He calls Judas and Satan his friend. It's a, a comment of, what's the word I want here? I'm going to just lay it out to you. Oh, I don't. I don't want to lay it out to you because that will keep you from figuring it out on your own. It is not antipathy. It is not enmity. Christ refers to them as friend and he means it because he says what he says because he means what he says. He's God. Why have you come? I know some disagree. Bless their hearts. It doesn't fit. I hope you'll see that that's the case. Prior, Judas and Satan instruct the military commanders. Judas says to them, whomever I kiss, he's the one. He's the one. You can't get any more clearer than that. He's the one. It's what he says to them. How smart is Judas? He's got Satan inside him. He's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. You're right. That's hilarious. The only one that knew it was hilarious is you and Judas and Satan. That's the point, isn't it? To reinforce, Judas is in command of this. He's leading this. He's so powerful, so overwhelming that no one can deal with him. Not even close. The combining of Judas and Satan can only result in Judas, Judas, Satan being in control. They're not going to be moved around by the army. They're not going to subject themselves to the army. There's no possibility of that. They don't think that way. They have a plan. It's our job to figure out what they're doing. The power they possess is unlike anything seen by humanity. These are created beings in a unit. The symbolism of the kiss is multifaceted. There's kissing of friends. And friend, again, means friend. That's, that's the strongest thing to, to make you understand. That's what a friend does to a friend. And Christ receives the kiss. And that seems to be implied that that's the purpose. But there's others. There's the kissing of pagan idols. There's the kissing of a father to the son. There's the kissing of a son to the father. There's the ceremonial, the the prophet to the king. There's also the farewell. How many of that, how many of those apply to Judas's symbol of the kiss? 
That's just to list a few because list makers are going to list. Let's assume, just because we don't have time to do otherwise, if Satan, I'm sorry, if Judas Satan is saying farewell to Christ, what's the obvious question? Let's just use farewell. If he's saying farewell to Christ, where is he going? What are the expectations of Judas Satan? They've brought tens of thousands of soldiers and priests and elders and political leaders and everybody to come. And they're all there. They've got a whole garden surrounded with every possible guy they got. Because Jesus Christ has a habit of walking through people. They don't even know who he is. Judas has led them, and they're following him. Why would they follow Judas Satan? Because it's Judas Satan. Anyway, I cannot accept that Judas and Satan had any consideration, any imaginings that Christ would assent to being seized or led away. I don't think that occurred to them. I believe that was an absolute shock. They had it thought through. They knew what they were going to do. And he, as he always does, goes a different direction that no one anticipated. I recognize they could have studied the Samson typology or the goat for Azazel or any other scriptural event where a type of Christ is led away. But I don't think they were able to figure it out because they're not, they're not omniscient and they don't have the capabilities of the Holy Spirit teaching them. Anyway, Judas Satan admits to the idiots that are under his authority that Jesus Christ is the one. He's the one. Go get the one. Ready, go. Go ahead and seize the one, the infinite God. Lead him away safely. What can possibly go wrong? Why does they say that? Why does Satan say this? Why does Judas say this? I submit it's far, far more clever than uh, he's the he's the one is far more interesting than just a double meaning. Because they're declaring him to be God here, which tells me that they came quick from Matthew four. By now, Judas and Satan think they know things. They think they know who he really is. And they think they know what he's going to do to the Roman and the Jewish armies. They're right on one. They're wrong on two. Did they know the Romans would try to crucify him? Could they have figured that out? It's Roman execution. He's a insurrectionist. What do they do to insurrectionists to the Roman Empire? Did, they, did Judas and Satan figure out they're going to crucify him? Well, yeah. But can they? No. But they would have figured it out. I mean, they would have known that that's what the Romans would try to do. That would be, again, hilarious. Consider what would be the U.S. equivalent to try to help you imagine it. The president of the United States, his entire cabinet, all of his resources of the executive branch, all of Congress, the legislative branch, all the judicial branch, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Every military personnel that could be could be gathered, the religious or the ecumenical uh, contingent of all the religious uh, figures in the country, everyone would be behind Judas Satan and every one of them would be obeying him and certain that they're going to capture, they're going to kill, they're going to imprison God in the flesh because they don't know it's God. But Satan and Judas know it's God. So who's insane in the picture? Well, eliminate Christ. Not Judas Satan. Who's left? The people that are listening to Judas Satan. Who believe them. What is the explanation for Gethsemane? You have to kind of work that out. I hope that you are doing so. Does Judas fear his own death? I say absolutely no, he does not. What does he want then? Why does he throw the silver, Zechariah 11.13, Zechariah 11.17? Because he goes and throws the silver. He knows it's Zechariah 11.13. He knows it's Zechariah 11.17. I've covered that in the past. And he does it anyway. After he realizes that Christ is going to agree to be captured. 
after he knocks every single one of the soldiers down, including Judas. Anyway, moving to Revelation 19, 11 through 21. And we're going to read this really fast because Terry has already told me to quit, which she always does because she doesn't like me. It's just how it is around here. Yeah, finally, someone who can make him stop. That's a great line. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in... I can't read. New eyes. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on... Written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Where did the horses come from? Now out of his mouth comes a sharp, sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will subdue them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has written on his robe, actually, um, is the, the, the Talit. King of kings and Lord of lords. It's the way you tie the knots of the friends of the Talit. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. All, All the birds were filled with their flesh. That's obviously bring two. Bring one, bring two. Matthew 26, Revelation 19. <coughs> I need to note that Second Thessalonians 1 through 12 adds more information. The seed of the serpent is slain by the breath of the Lord. The breath of the life, the breath of life uh, destroys the seed of the serpent. The son of perdition, he is called, Second Thessalonians 2, 3, as you know. Uh, Judas is called the son of perdition by Christ himself. John 17, 12. The son of perdition is killed by him who is faithful and true. Probably should read uh, some of Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12 to solidify the point. Yea, a point. Finally got to one page nine, but I really don't have time. You're on your own there. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12. Satan and Judas, what do they do? What's the pattern, Ezekiel 28, 16? What does Satan do? Abundance of your traffic. He, they lie and they deceive. Those who perish do not believe the truth. They do not love the truth that they might be saved. Instead, they choose to believe the lie and they are all condemned. That's again, Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12. Without dispute, when Christ says the truth, he is talking about himself. The truth is a person. When he says the lie, he is also talking about a lie. The lie is a person. But the truth also is who the person is. The person is the truth. In the sense that the truth of him is also there. What the person is. The person is faithful and true. The lie is the lie about the one who is always Good. In other words, the lie is a person, but it's also, uh, it has a substance to it, and the lie is lying about the one who is always good. What do you think the lie says about the one who is always good? Obviously, it says it's not always good. So that's the lie. It's a person, and it also has a context to it. Jesus, God himself, walking in our midst, said, I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11 through 14. 
Again, this is Zechariah 11. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, but the hireling is not the shepherd, not the one who owns the sheep. He says, Christ says, I own the sheep. The hireling does not own the sheep. I'm the one who gives my life for the sheep. The hireling does not care about the sheep. It's what he says. I'm good. And then again, his commentary, it's the New Testament complement of Zechariah 11, the prophecy of the two shepherds. But it also is the Lord God Almighty himself declaring that he's what? Good. The goodness of God is the core of our faith. This is the truth of God, that he is always good, he is only good. If you conclude otherwise, you hear me call it omnibenevolence. If you conclude that he is not always good, then full stop. Back up. Bring the sub to the surface. You're drowning. Regroup. Start searching for the good. You'll read lots of scriptures and you're going to conclude, oh, God was not good here. Well, just get a sledge, four or five pounds, and smash yourself in the face. Boom. That's how you get like this. I have thought some really stupid things in my life. I'm not proud of any of them. And hopefully they're erased. They're erased from my memory. That's a lecture someday on anesthesiology. Anyway, probably next week I'll deal with that because we'll go into the time off here with that so that you can answer it. Apparently, it me really fast. I'm out of time. I know it. But really fast. There's a great effort now that um, men are saying, scientific thinkers are saying that they, they have destroyed their consciousness through propofol, which is what you get when you go in for general anesthetic. Michael Jordan. Not Jordan. Michael Jackson. One, one does that. One does that. Thanks for laughing. (laughs) You knew exactly. But uh, Profifol, and you can say pro football if you want, but uh, Profifol is a powerful sedative. And they believe that it, it, it ceases your consciousness. And they say so. And they say, I have ceased to exist two or three times now because they've gone under general anesthetic. And they don't think that there's a possibility you can refute that. Uh, You can. The Bible says that it's not true. And if it is true, then what is the lie? Same lie, different day. If consciousness emerges from the brain, then God is evil. And he says very clearly, I am not. I am good. I am the one who gives his life for the sheep. (sighs) If you conclude otherwise, again, stop. Just look at it again and you'll figure it out. Now, let's revisit really, really fast the accusation of Israel at Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Also, Numbers 20, verse 4 and Numbers 21, verse 5. Combining these passages into one, it becomes primarily, why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our animals in the desert where there's no food, no water? We loathe the manna. We should have joined the Korah rebellion. If you add those three passages up, that's what you get. Shrinking it a little bit to its essence, it becomes God has created mankind and animals as temporal beings who are extinguished at physical death. Therefore, our short period of time is meaningless in contrast to the length that is time. He just made us just to kill us. That's all he's doing. It's a game to him. It's all, uh, it's a, that's nihilism, fatalism. And if you've not been around the last few weeks or years, uh, I am able to conclude that what what is said at Exodus 17, Numbers 20, Numbers 21, is the is is the conversation that Christ has with Satan at Matthew 4 and Luke 4, because Satan actually, I'm sorry, Jesus, put it another way, I'm losing my thought here. In other words, Jesus brings up Exodus 17, 1 through 7 as the rebuke to Satan. Satan's premises of the bread and the stone and throw yourself down. 
He says, do not put your Lord God to test, which means, actually means this. Do not put me on trial, he's saying. Do not put your Lord God, the Lord your God, the Ancient of Days. Do not put me on trial as I put you on trial in Genesis 3, 14 through 15. Obviously, these two challenges of Satan are equivalent to the accusation of Israel. You just brought us out, our children and our animals, to kill us. No food, no water, we're in the desert, we hate you. That's the, that's the accusation of Israel, and that is the accusation of Satan, incorporated in the bread and stone, and throw yourself down. Christ makes him the same. So the definition of testing of the Lord your God, putting the Lord God on trial, as a thought here, who's the judges and the juries on this trial? What's the crime that God has committed? The crime is obvious. You brought us out just to kill us. So to sum it up, again, rinse, repeat. If God has indeed created mankind and angels and animals to summarily annihilate them, then the good shepherd is not good and goodness is all a lie, right? There you go. Remember, Judas, Satan, deceive. It's what they do. It's what they intend. They're congenital, unceasing. Judas lied to the soldiers. My goodness. Go get him. These are the one. Seize him. Lead him away safely. Why did he do that? What's his, what, what did he hope to accomplish with his lie? And remember, he's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Satan's lie is that we are momentarily an illusion of life, which means that there is no life, that there is no, and there is no life because there is no goodness. To boil it down to its smallest particle, I hope. Satan's lie is saying that God is lying about everything, but primarily about life. Now, why would Satan do this? What's his motive? Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Ezekiel 28, 14 through 16. Why did Satan choose to become the profane thing? Because he did. He was the anointed cherub and he decided to be the profane thing and say this lie about God's goodness and about life. Anyway, obviously the lie attacks the absolute goodness of God. To repeat the lie one more time, there is no good shepherd. Judas is revealed as the hireling. We know that. He's the one who throws the silver to the temple potter. That's a great mystery. The temple potter, of course, is God. But neither the good shepherd or the idle shepherd intended to, uh, for the sheep to live. That's what Satan is saying. God has brought us here to kill us. Is identical to God the potter has made us only to kill us. It's the same thing. You'll find this today. Many theologians believe that much of mankind was made with what? No hope of salvation. It's common in the church if not prevailing. They call it this, predestined. Predestined for eternal damnation. They assert that babies, children, who die, were condemned to die before they were formed. And all animals are annihilated. That's what they say, don't they? Every church, you can't find one that won't. Okay, you found one that won't. Because it doesn't fit. The lie is Exodus 17. What Israel says is the lie. You have brought us out to kill our children and our animals. That's the lie and us. But now I'm focusing on children and animals. How is Exodus 17.3? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill our children and our animals? How is that different from what the church says about Ecclesiastes 3? Clearly, they have not placed Exodus 17.3 to Matthew 4.7. Of course, the atheist, the evolutionist, he declares every, everybody dissolves into nothingness. There are, but there are numerous Christian churches and Christian teachers who share this position. They're agreeing with the evolutionists. If you're agreeing with an evolutionary atheist, maybe you should reconsider your profession. I'm starting to spit. Don't sit in the front row. I'm not, I don't dare put this on my finger right now. It's not good news. These churches are teach, they teach conditional and it's hilarious. I keep saying that because today's a very funny day. This is a redundancy, conditional annihilationism. In other words, they believe that most are erased. All the animals are erased. 
most of humanity are raised, and only a few are given immortality, which of course is them. Please sign up for membership, bring money. Obviously, if God annihilates the overwhelming majority, usually the thinking, I should say this, I should make it reasonable, what they, well, I can't make it reasonable, I'll present what they think. They include a short duration of punishment, and then he annihilates them. If you are annihilated, then what have you always had? What's the immediate question? You've always had annihilation, just waiting for the time. Is that what he gave? Did God give most of humanity and all the animals annihilation? How about the angels? If you said, did the, if I asked one of those that think this way, did the majority ever have anything but annihilation? Those that subscribe to the predestined causation position will emphatically answer yes. They see God's omniscience, his timelessness, his perspective from out his frame of reference that's outside of time. They believe that his omniscience, they, they believe that's the cause of unbelief and belief, to be fair. Is omniscience causation? That's a beginning elementary question for Christians to resolve. If you haven't figured that out yet, you make me tired. And if you answer yes, that God's omniscience causes uh, unbelief, well, you've got more problems. For example, how much unbelief is unbelief? Do you truly believe? Because you can re- here's a reciprocal. Do you truly believe? Have you crossed the threshold? Or do you merely have an illusion of of belief? Because if you have an illusion of existence, then you can have an illusion of belief, can't you? And if I'm being annihilated because I've been predestined to to condemnation, then I had an illusion of life. Because I don't really have life, I have annihilism. If I have an illusion of life, then I can have an illusion of belief. So who can really know they're saved? Where's the assurance of salvation? How can I know I'm saved? Is what Abraham asked, right? Hopefully you recognize the question, the origin of that question. It's part of the lie of Satan, isn't it? Does God love his creation? Does he love his living beings? Is God good? Is he always good? Did he bring the children, the the, the people, the children and the animals out to kill them? Is that what he does? Did he make us so that he could kill us? Did he make the people, the children and the animals so that he could kill them? Is that him? Is that good? Does that fit anything? It's obviously a lie. Did Judas expect to be slain at Gethsemane? I'm going to say yes. Does the Antichrist expect to be slain at the Battle of Basra where he brings the multitude, Joel 3, 12 through 13, he brings the multitude, an army that brings two, right? What about the angels and the animals that marks... Mark 1, 12 through 13, because the angels and the animals come to Christ. Why did the animals come to Christ? I'm just throwing questions out here so I can get done, get to the buffet. Why did animals come to Christ? Why did the When did the animals come to Christ? Because they do. Christ is in the wilderness. Of course he's in the wilderness. And there are animals there. Why did the animals come to him? When did they come to him? Did they come before the confrontation of Satan? with Satan or after the confrontation with Satan, after Jesus cast Satan away? Because we know the angels came after Satan was sent away. Some angels came. Who are those angels? Why do they come? Were the angels, therefore, concurrent with the animals? They come at the same time. As soon as Satan's cast away, here come the animals, here come the unfallen angels. I submit that they did, that angels and animals came after Satan was removed. I think that's the case. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to be with Christ. That's a good idea. There's Christ. I want to be with him. They came because they knew something. What did they know? They knew who Christ is. And they knew that he's good. He proved it there. Their evidence. That's why Mark puts it in. This is evidence of God's goodness. Animals came. Angels came. I didn't finish. Didn't even come close. Do not put God on trial. Do not judge him for goodness sakes. No, what it, if the jury summons comes, you're going to be on the jury for God to, to adjudicate his goodness. The complaint is that he's not good. Show up at 8 in the morning, room 15. 
Don't respond. This is a good jury summons to lose. Call in sick. Claim you're old, you can't hear. That's my move. All I have to do is walk in, and they see me, and they see my profession, and they go, please leave now. Somebody help this man get out of here. I get treated really well, boy. And Christ is the one who searches the minds for belief. And Israel was put in the wilderness, the barren desert. Why did God put them into the desert? He said he was putting them there to test them, didn't he? What's the test? What's he searching for? Who's going to find the... When they, who's going to evaluate and, and grade the test, if you will? The angels? Who searches the, the mind? The church has been waiting on the fallen earth for almost 2,000 years. Oh, 2,000 years now. And how many, over 2,000 years, and how many know who Christ really is in the church? Christendom. How many believe? How many will come to him? How many know goodness? He is goodness, complete, absolute goodness. How many know goodness from evil? Oh, that's an interesting question. There we are, Genesis 3.22, 2.16 through 17. Good from evil. Okay, shut it down. That was exhausting.